Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello, and welcome to episode 121. Now, last time you heard my dulcet tones, you will have heard just myself and Sal Merkianagos having a nice conversation for about an hour and a half about <laughs> putting the world to right in academic fashion. Today, though, I'm joined by the regular March, March of the academics. crew. It was. It was the March of the Academics. And it was fun, though. I, I have to admit, I did miss you both. Is, is it, it Blue Row played backwards? Is um, it Blue Row backwards? It's uh, but it was um it was it was interesting. We basically spent our entire time dissecting various laws and going, these are my days are badly written. <laughs> well, I'm sure we, we all have some fun with um, the weird interpretations of copyright rules, how suddenly 70 years doesn't equal 70 years anymore. No, that no, a few no, times. I bet Drat as well. Mm. Uh, yes, I, I basically, my own way of avoiding that is to use Wikipedia pictures, because if the pictures are on Wikipedia, my view is in a nice way, if you're trying to maintain copyright, you've lost it. They, that's the definition of those pictures being freed up for educational use, and I'm using them for education. Look, it's, a, it's a very simple, very universal law, 70 years, no more. And um, yeah. uh, somehow, some people can, can gain it, but... Hey, it's not got anything to do with any uh, our subject today, I'm sure. No. Well, we're having fun those day because, as last year, well, right, happened... right now, right now, Doctor Clark is getting smothered to death by a poodle. <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, it's the usual bilge pumps, um, high quality of um, content. Yeah, well, as, as always, the poodle does like to be involved. Um, no, we went, of course, to the same conference we went last time, the Defence Leaders Future Navy Conference. And, well, this has become a yearly thing for myself and Drac now. And it's good. It's interesting. We learn a lot. And, Drac, do you want to tell us all about the thing you spotted when basically we walked in the room and he was looking around the stands and he spotted something on the BAE stand, and he dove for it. I mean, I've <laughs> never seen the man fly faster across a room, apart from when there was a chocolate twist involved. Uh, <laughs> it was it was the, the highest speed manoeuvre I have seen happen in a long time. And what was great fun was he did actually dive right past where breakfast was being served, which included chocolate twists. So I thought he was heading for the chocolate twists. <laughs> but no, he goes on to the, Kareen's on to the BAE stand. I was going, oh, good Lord, what's happening to Paul B.A.? He's not going to confront them already. <laughs> he's going to stalk them and basically torment them for the, the, the next three days. But no, he wasn't charging there for that. He had another reason. Yeah, so um, it's the return of the hedgehog. <laughs> yeah. Um, they had on display a thing called a kingfisher round, which is either a 4.5 or 5-inch um, gun round, but is actually an anti-submarine uh, shell, believe it or not. Uh, Gun-launched anti-submarine munition um, was apparently previewed at the very end of last year, but it, it's quite an interesting and innovative solution because, of course, as we know, if you fire a gun into the water, the shell tends to break up and or doesn't go very far. But what they've done with the Kingfisher is that 
effectively the shell is a launch body. So the shell gets fired from the gun to roughly the place you want to drop the munition on. And then the body of the shell has a small ejection charge, which then kicks out this triple fin stabilized explosive package, which is, you know, actually, ironically enough, about the size of a hedgehog warhead, which then drops into the water and presumably heads down to, you know, blow up in contact with a submarine hull. Um, now, one of the initial things I thought when I saw it is, okay, that's not necessarily the world's largest amount of explosive when you consider how big depth charges and torpedo warheads are. Um, the 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 data listing for it suggested it should would be carrying three kilos or just over six pounds of high explosive, but. Compared to depth charges or anti-submarine torpedoes, it is considerably smaller, can be fired in very large numbers very quickly from a deck gun, and obviously, therefore, like a hedgehog, can be used to saturate a target. But it also means you have a kind of a, a, a semi-standoff capability that ships at the moment, a lot of ships don't have, because a lot of ships tend to rely on their helicopters for ASW. Some ships have their own onboard anti-sub torpedo launchers, uh, but not all of them. And uh, this is relatively cheap, and they also pointed out can be used, obviously, in a somewhat more individually effective capacity against underwater, unmanned underwater vehicles, which trend towards being considerably smaller and would therefore be a lot more vulnerable to a single hit or near miss by such a charge. It's also quite good for anti-mine warfare, I decided, because I was looking and mm -hmm. thinking, well, if you had a remote vehicle going in looking for the mines, and that can map them, and then boom, 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 you drop in those, that's going to deal with most mines. Mm -hmm. That sort of answered my initial question, which was, aren't you already dead if you're inside gun range of a, of a torpedo carrying you know, hunter killer? Um, but you're right, if it comes down to things like um, oh. you know, unmanned underwater vehicles and um, mines and uh, such systems, then I guess having a uh, five-inch shell loving a, um, if not a hedgehog, we call it an echidna, which is the Australian version, um, <laughs> yeah. onto, on, on top of your head might actually be useful, but I still can't see it as being useful against a, a full SSN. Well, well, it says it's got a range of about 30 kilometres, and there's also pointing out that it could be used to provide a measure of anti-torpedo defence, not necessarily in terms of destroying the torpedo, because if a, if a torpedo is heading in at, you know, 40, 50 knots, then it's statistically the chances of firing a shell, even with modern fire control solutions, firing a shell, having it eject the submunition at the right location, having it drop in sync at the right rate to get close enough to destroy the, <laughs> the torpedo. That's relatively unlikely, even with a saturation pattern, but uh, the series of explosive explosions going off might be enough to either sever guidance wires or to disrupt the sonar on the torpedo, which might then cause it to miss its target, which could be a quite useful capability. Um, I, I tend to agree that it's, you know, against a full-sized SSN, a three-kilo charge is probably not tremendously useful as a single kill unit, but if you fire off several dozen of them and you're saturating the area, apart from anything else, it's similar to the torpedo. You're probably um, annoying it, saturating it, sonar disrupting it, 
and that might and it might also act then as a cover for other stuff to move in because of course we know that submarine passive sonars and so forth nowadays are sensitive enough that if you were to approach with a helicopter let's say that was going to try and drop the depth charge old school style or a short-range anti-submarine torpedo or something like that um a modern passive sonar might actually detect that approach and allow the submarine to take evasive action whereas if you saturate the area with very loud but relatively small explosions there's an off chance you might do some damage but there's a much much higher chance that the passive sonar operator might miss the approaching helicopter or maritime patrol aircraft with considerably nastier munitions i suppose the flip side to that is of course if you're being saturated by a bunch of small explosions that indicates you have been detected <laughs> as a submarine commander you'd probably be diving and evading anyway I'd also add there's another option, and that comes back with that ladder scenario, in mm. that if you are considering these things from the perspective of a cheap way to deter, to investigate a potential threat, let's be honest, in current scenarios, you either have firing a very expensive torpedo or all sorts of things at a target which you think is potentially an enemy submarine lying in wait, especially if you're an escort ahead of the carrier. So the thing is, the submarine could be lying in wait trying to grab a carrier, not bothering to, uh, to try and trying to sneak past the escort. Well, now mm. the escort can go, hang on, that's a potential threat. That's not worth me firing a torpedo at, but um, how much do those uh, shells cost again? A lot less drop than torpedoes. <laughs> yes, you can drop a few, a few of those off. And sure if it that? starts to move, it's a threat. Launch torpedoes time. Get the helicopter in. Do all that. And it's a case of for me, if I was a sub-captain, I'd be very worried about a nation which had those rounds because they have a lot of options below the low. It's going to say they have a lot of options which are very cost-effective to save the expensive torpedoes mm. and the expensive other systems <clears throat> to try and make spook you. Mm. I mean, the, the other thing is just in terms of rapid response, because if you... If you have a contact of any description that you want to go after, and bear in mind, like a 30-kilometer radius around the ship is a fairly large patch of sea if you're running escort. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if if you are the sonar operator of a Type 23 or, or latterly a Type 26, and you think, hmm, there's, there's something suspicious over on, on that bearing at 20 kilometers or so, you might want to then go okay let's get a merlin or a sh60 to toodle on over there and check it out but that could take time in which time the contact may disappear whereas if you've got a fleeting contact and you're just like let's chuck a you know a, one of these kingfisher shells over there theoretically that shell could be there within 10 seconds of you identifying the contact at which point you haven't expended all that much in terms of resources, but if it is a contact that is actually a, ho a hostile sub, and you just blew up a, you know, six kilos of high, ex uh, six pounds of high explosive next to it, everybody now knows what's going on, <laughs> and, and it, it puts yeah, you on the on the front foot. I, I just, you know, it just keeps coming back to mind that you know, modern torpedoes, mm -hmm. fifty to hundred kilometers is, you know sort of their range isn't it? Um, yes so. but do they they don't fire them at 50 to 100 kilometers because <laughs> as it's also, you can't it's kind of like with the long range torpedoes in model 2 and model 1 you can fire a torpedo at very long range yes and you can 
possibly hit your target. But you also, the longer the range you fire it at, the slower it tends to be having to go because it's got to conserve fuel for the, the, the route in. It's not going to go to the whole range at the full speed. And more importantly than that, you've also given the target a lot of warning to try and deploy countermeasures and try and avoid it. And ships can. They can avoid these things. It, it sounds terrible, strange to say sometimes because when we look at some of the history, we go, oh, you know, uh, the, the Sony ships have been sunk by torpedoes. But if you also look at it, there's how many ships have managed to avoid being sunk by torpedoes because when they've seen a torpedo coming, they've managed to avoid it. And yes, you can say, well, these are modern homing torpedoes and they can get in. But we have decoys. We have all sorts of systems put on. There are even anti-torpedo torpedoes now wandering around. Although they don't uh, work very well. <laughs> they don't work very well. But they, they the fact they've got the first generation of them, the first generation are going to be terrible they are well i'm I'm, I'm thinking i'm thinking more along the lines of, of just si simple evasion techniques you know if 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 you know a torpedo has um let's say a 50 kilometer range if the submarine that's firing it fires it at 45 kilometers then if you detect it if you detect that launch it's gonna take a little time to cross that distance. I mean, even at 40, 45, 50 knots, it will take, you know, you're talking about tens of minutes, possibly. Um, at which point, if you just turn tail and leg it five, six kilometers in the opposite direction, you move out of its actual maximum range, then, you know, it, it will probably have crossed its halfway point of transit by the time you've actually gone beyond its its maximum capability. It's kind of like with missiles. Mm. You know, the, the, a missile might have a theoretical 120 kilometer range, but if you fire at 120 kilometers and the other aircraft just does a 180 and flies out to 130 kilometers beyond your launch point, there's nothing that missile can do. So, you know, the people. I think the subs are probably going to be trying to get a bit closer. Plus, um, there's also the case of you know if you're actively hunting submarines. Um, you may be you may end up worryingly close to a, a potential contact uh, that's trying to hide from you, <laughs> which uh, it it it's kind of it gives you that quick draw capability. It gives you a snapshot mm. capability, which is currently in mo yeah. mostly the, mostly in the advantage of the of the submarines. Yeah. But they, they did talk a lot yeah. about you um, small underwater vehicles and uh, sort of man manned small, I guess, attack swimmer vehicles and stuff like that a lot, which they would be considerably more lethal against, especially in shallow waters. I guess it gives you another tool to your, to your um, pocket knife, doesn't it? It's mm. uh, another option which you always tend to want because when one thing fails, then you might need to fall back on something a bit a bit uh, dumber or more direct. We are, and... The interesting thing is we are seeing, I would say, a further proof of what we've been saying on this channel a lot over the years. And I, I always hesitate about repeating stuff we've gone over ground, we've gone over a lot. But the utility of the gun, and the fact is, it's just proving more and more useful. That gun on the front, that big five-inch or four-and-a-half-inch gun at the front of a ship, it's a case of okay, we do need to start thinking about how much we have in space and we have in the magazine because some of the anti aircraft rounds, anti surface rounds, and now anti submarine rounds, how many of these are we going to want to carry? You know, if we're going to do a pattern of 20 of those anti submarine rounds in a fire, we're not going to be able to limit ourselves to one pattern 
So we're probably going to want to have a few. So that means we might want to be carrying some region of 400 to 1200 shells overall. So we can carry 400 of each of these different variants or something. It's, it's going to be something you're going to have to think about in ship design going on of how much space are we allocating to the ship's gun magazine? Because currently that's always been a very much a secondary thing. And sometimes the magazines, frankly, are a joke. Well, yeah, we now need magazine space back. We need to think it through. It needs to be part of your design because I, I, that's I you just stick it up in the holes. Hmm? You just stick it up in the mess decks. <laughs> to be fair, sometimes you do have to, but you don't want to. That it's 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 what happened in the Falklands War. They had there was there were literally there was ammunition literally being stacked in places where they didn't have weren't supposed to have ammunition. Because that was the only way they were taking down enough to do the job. Another lesson not learned. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, the, the the funny thing is, you know, ha having talked about something that probably has its apex role against small underwater unmanned vessels. Um, <laughs> good grief! Did this uh, conference have its supply of underwater unmanned vessels? Yeah. You know, last last year it was a mixture of drones, um, in in very interesting uh, ship upgrades, uh, a data link company running from me constantly trying to hide because I kept wanting to talk yeah. about their drone, which was supposed um, to be so important. There there was a lot of it was either surface or aerial focused. This time around, it was like every third stand had its own small underwater unmanned ve vehicle of varying kinds and you know some of them are kind of your your bright yellow we stuck it we've got a tube with a hemisphere stuck on one end sea glider types and uh some of them were you know very modern almost storm shadow alcm looking uh shaped stealthy dark colored um low profile things that look a little bit more serious and everything in between, um, plus some underwater exploration robots that, you know, in, in the manner of Mars landers, moon landers, and deep water submersibles look more like a collection of legs and arms <laughs> with a camera lens in the middle. Um, there was uh, one particular one which we have looked at and we are trying to work out the price value of us actually procuring for ship shape because um, uh, it's able to be controlled from a mobile phone by the same skills that Drac already has with his drone control system, and you can do the drone pilot, a uh, drone undersea pilot license, and you can buy a pair of them. And this was the interesting thing: a pair of them will cost about twelve to fifteen grand to fully equip for underwater photography. So you buy a brace with tethers and all the other equipment. You can do all the maintenance yourself. It's it's basically the HP laser jet printer of. Uh, of this sort of system, and it's used for mine warfare, it's used for all sorts of things, but it is used for a lot of maritime archaeology. The thing that really attracted me was they were showing me whole pictures of Narvik, the team that tested and developed it on Trondheim. And they said that if ever we go to um, Norway, and if we go and uh, we go and look at those areas, we're invited to go and use the equipment they have already on there, and for free, to go and test it out and deploy it. But we're sort of looking at it going... We'd like this. We'd like to have them to take mm. around with us because you know it's it's it can go down to 350, 400 meters. So if you think about that from a diving perspective, yes, 
Drac is already doing all these qualifications. I could do the qualifications and get those standards and do that. But that's going to be a lot more expensive and a lot more difficult in some regards than having this. And even if we do do those things, having this as well would be a major advantage because a pair of those, that's going to make your life easier getting the underwater photography and the, and the archaeology done. And it's going to be far easier to get a permit to deploy one of those on some underwater sites than it is to actually go down yourself as a human because they always worry about the health and safety so, factor. Are you, are you planning to go... Oh. It's pretty too late for you to go and rip up steel from uh, Prince of Wales and um, Repulse, mm. but you might be able to get some from the um, uh, the various wrecks in the Scapa Flow. It, yeah, yeah, Scapa, Narvik. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of relatively my head shallow. HMS Cossack is not 350 meters down. Well, I mean, to be honest, it also, um, in terms of underwater archaeology from a historical perspective, it actually opens up a huge um, a huge amount of additional capability because historically um if you're looking for a wreck you usually have to hire some side scan sonar or something to try and find the thing in the first place which okay that's not going to change although although they did have a few relatively small side scan sonar scanning units as well and perhaps as the world of unmanned underwater vessels continues to expand maybe you know some kind of um, slightly more beefed up than just a wave glider, rem like self-propelled, self-guided side scan unit might be an option because then at that point you don't have to hire a big expensive survey ship and tow the thing. You could just have, you know, hire a, a glorified yacht that just has enough deck space aft to carry the thing and then you just chuck it over the side <laughs> using the boat crane and let it go off and do its own survey, and then you just have to come back and collect it at the end of the day, which is a lot cheaper. Um, but that may be for the future. But the something like this, you know, again for underwater archaeology, assuming you found a side scan sonar image of a wreck, you don't know that that is the wreck unless you either go down in person or if it's deeper, you send an ROV, which again involves hiring a whole ROV capable ship and ROV operators and the ROV itself which is all a lot of money, then you've got to go out there and you know do all of this stuff. Whereas with something like this, again, a much smaller vessel with your perhaps even your own expertise at a much lower price point and you own your own ROV or several, um, you might be able to pop down and just take a look and go, yep, that's the wreck or that's not the wreck, uh, which will both speed up the rate that wrecks are discovered, hopefully, but also make it much, much easier for archaeologists who historically usually don't have the world's biggest budgets um, to actually go after things that either they want to find out if it is the wreck that they think it is, or if it's the case of we know that this is the wreck site of whatever. Um, you know, if it if all it costs you is the services of a friendly private yacht owner or something, and you know, taking the university's ROV off of the shelf and plugging it into the back, you could actually go out and survey a lot of wrecks where we know where that wreck is, but we don't have any decent record of what the state, the condition of that wreck is. Um, quick, question, quick, quick question. You mm -hmm. said that these things had arms? Mm -hmm. Yes. And carry a hammer? <laughs> uh, I suppose in theory. Well, you, what's that wreck you've got off uh, the, the, near, near you guys? The one that oh, the one that's full of explosives in the Thames estuary. Yeah. 
<laughs> Don't give him that idea. Well, it's on near the surface anyway. Bad enough, he's working on Greek fire. Do you know he will spend and he spent a very long time, it's disturbingly really his, long time, really looking at fireproof down. suits. Fireproof suits, diving suits. Yeah, I mean the, he was the main, the main to get thing tailored and fitted for all of them. The main thing is you've got to it is going to be whether or not this technology is considered sensitive or 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 not because you know there's a there's a lot of stuff there that could be very useful for the his, ship historical community, but for example, there's a whole load of I don't know exactly what to call them underwater single man propulsion units or something like that. Basically. I guess they're like the the underwater jet skis that you hold on to. You see that actually, you see them in what was it? M not Moonraker, Thunderball, the um, old James Bond film. You know the the kind of self propulsion units for scuba divers that they've had forever and a day. But these are more advanced versions. They're sleeker. They're more hydrodynamic. They've got a bunch of systems and sensors on them, and they can move pretty quickly for a long period of time. Carry their own air supply for you to plug into, etc. Um, I was very tempted, but I was advised also these are only available for sale to the military, <laughs> which kind of oh, puts the guy on. You, you, you use it to go and put a limpet mine on Prince of Wales and Queen Elizabeth. Mm. But um, but but something that apparently could be available for civilian use. Um, I think it's was it JRD. I think you've actually got the uh, pamph the uh, uh, leaflet they gave me, Doctor Clark. Um, oh, yes. Now they had a very interesting vessel. I have a book of. I have an entire carrier bag of <laughs> leaflets. Oh yes, the Royal Marine and Royal Navy Charity. They have a tote bag that's literally called a carrier bag with a picture on a, of a carrier on the side. And as this is my second one, Jamie. If we do manage to meet up in Australia, this one is going to be coming to you because I thought you'd <laughs> enjoy it. Uh, I we also this is something else we'll have to talk about. We've uh, we got given a copy. Well, I well. Brack is that... missed the stand, but we got a free copy of Command. Oh, is that Command Modern Air, Air Naval Operations? Yes, Modern oh, Operations. Good Lord. I've actually, I actually bought that ages ago and basically ran into a brick wall trying to understand yeah. how it worked. Um, yeah, I never had. I, I've never had the time to um, go through all the tutorials. I really should. I, I, they, they I tried putting a um, everything, um, and also we've got Harlan and Wolf, you know, thing. I tried putting a um, a Type forty five against an Ali Burke in a surface action to see who would win um, in in that thing, and the only thing that happened was they shot down each other's helicopters and then proceeded to fire missiles at each other for about 10 minutes until they'd expended their missile magazines while the other side's missiles shot down the other side's missiles. Um, and then they both ran out of deck gun ammunition trying to sink each other. <laughs> I must I must have left the crew on cadet or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, I think I think the firm was called JRD. They... Now they had a very interesting um little setup. It's basically um uh, if you've ever seen the top of a a, a beach armored recovery vehicle, a barb, yeah, that's the one um on the front of the pile. Yeah, JFD. JFD, yeah. So if you've ever seen that kind of almost casement-style topping to a, to a beach-armoured recovery vehicle, if you imagine one of those stuck on the hull of a large jet ski, so it does look a little bit weird at first, um, but it's, uh, I guess for the military purposes, designed as a 
that's a swimmer insertion vehicle. So you can get six men in it. Um, it's basically a box on there, but the 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 lower part of the hull, harkening back to what the World War II era, where submarines operated mostly on the surface, the lower part of the hull is designed to allow it to transit at speed like a jet ski with basically zero draft through shallow water. Um, and then once it gets to a given point where you need to go underwater, it can then submerge and run underwater as a small submersible. Um, obviously, the compartment that the men are sitting in just floods, so there's nothing special about it. It's open-topped, um, but it does have its own, again, on own onboard air supply. So during all that transit, the, the divers aren't using their own onboard their own personal carried air tanks. But again, from a historical perspective, specifically looking at underwater archaeology, that kind of thing could be very useful. And this in this particular model apparently can be made available for civilian sale. Because if you are trying to do underwater archaeology, for one thing, some ships have the temerity to run aground, which may, may, makes investigating their wrecks very difficult if you are in a ship and you don't want to run aground, like, say, off the coast of Ireland. Um, and also, even in slightly deeper waters, if you are having to dive off of a ship, that ship needs to be able to keep station above you, especially if you're recovering artifacts. Um and also to you know have a safety line and so forth. And that again increases the cost of underwater archaeology because it's not a case of any old ship with a couple of props and a rudder on the back. It has to have bow thrusters, usually it has to have azopods or and all sorts of GPS controlled guidance to make sure it sticks above a certain point, which in the wind and the waves and the currents might not be very easy. Um plus it means everything you want to take down to your underwater archaeology site, you have to take down by hand, essentially. Um, now, if you then use one of these things, you can hire, again, any old boat. You can then anchor that boat half a mile away from your wreck site, and then everybody gets in the little speed machine, motors on over to the location of the wreck, dives, they're not using any of their air at this point, and then you just park it next to the wreck on the seabed, which they mentioned it can is fully capable of doing, and then you can disembark. You're right next to the wreck. You've not expended any energy at this point, and you can start doing all your exploration. And if you don't want to take six mm. archaeological divers down with you, then you can fill in portions of the compartment. So each compartment carries two people, um, which means that you can, say, have two divers go down with it and the other two compartments can contain, let's say one compartment contains supplies, so your, your grid, your marker boys, et cetera, et cetera, and the, the back compartment can contain a bunch of cases which you can use to put artifacts in, which can then remain nice and stable on um, within the craft. And then once you're done... You take it back up to the surface, again, in a stable control condition, no risk of dropping your artifacts, and then you surface and then you motor on back to your mothership and the, the day is done. Nice nice and simple and easy. And if anyone runs into any problems with their air supply while they're down there or if they need to make decompression stops or whatever, again, the thing has its own onboard air supply, which effectively compared to scuba tanks might as well be infinite. So it makes underwater archaeology much, much safer makes artifact recovery much, much safer and makes, again, makes it a lot cheaper. 
which all of which is absolutely superb. And then you you could even combine that with the the little ROV that we saw. If you are approaching a sensitive or delicate wreck, let's say it's a recent wreck, it's perhaps considered a grave. They don't want people approaching it, getting too close, or it's you know potentially got a bunch of explosives or poison gas on board. You could use this thing to take your ROV with you to within say 100 meters of the wreck and then close control it. So you can physically see what the ROV is doing without getting too close to the wreck yourself. It's it's amazing oh, some of the stuff that they can now do, and some of the stuff was working through it all was just mind blowing. The options for and we, we were as again as with last year, the the academics, the only historians and academics like that there were um, the ship shape crew and the built uh, the simset crew. And without us being there, there would literally would have been no historians wandering around. But I have to say, the thing that me and Drac both um, found the most absorbing was the Danish again. The Danish shipyard had turned up, and that what, container... What they offer you? Oh, lots of food. But more importantly, they had wonderful peanuts, and they were offering peanuts, beer, and on the day three when I turned up, because I told them I didn't drink, guess what they produced? Iron brew? Yep. A can of iron brew they got just for me. Uh, they were really, really lovely. I think they'd actually got the iron brew to try it themselves and they left the can over in case I, when I turned up on the Friday, on the Thursday. But um, no, they were really lovely. But uh, Drac, mm-hmm. the modular system they're using, do you want to explain the way they would clamp down the modulars? And Because you did the, uh, we both did the, full, the, the 3D control thing, didn't we? No, you did that. I did that. Only me. I thought you'd done it as well. Um, <laughs> because they said, I think they said, they, they told me, my one of my colleagues had done it, so now I have to figure out which That'll of probably us be Dan. Done. Yes, poss- quite possibly it was Dan. Uh, it was amazing. You could, you had, the only thing I can describe is like, if you could imagine Ultimate Admiral Dreadnoughts had been designed for modern shipbuilding and modern ship components, they had that. They could take you through the range of modules or hulls they could build, their sizes, and that you could plop in the various components and you could work out the configurers and you could literally configure it like that. And you could be networked into a scenario with 20 or 30 people around the world working on this. And they went, well, we do this already for cruise ships. What we found strange was no one was doing it for naval ships. So we built the systems to do it for naval ships. And then they got into their own pod system, their own, their modules. And those things are amazing. They have pneumatic locks and all sorts of things which go down and lock it in place. But they also have internal conveyor belt systems so it can move around internally, be positioned. And it was just, you're just sitting there going, oh my Lord, the amount of tailoring you can do for a ship. And the idea is this. You will have what's called a a basic crew of a ship, which are the ones who you need, the uh, colonel personnel, you need to keep it going. But you will have pods, and they will be loaded on, and they will be have the specialists turn up to run them. And those specialists can be training ashore on their pods and then flown out with the pods to wherever you need them, and then it can be put on, because the everything is designed to fit in a standard container and be taken by aircraft or train or whatever needs to be done. So it's all designed to be moved around, and it's all standardized TU sizes. It's not, oh, well, we can't fit it in a TU. No, it's, the policy is this. If it cannot fit in a TU, it will not be procured. 
they were it's really interesting listening they said oh no we're the lead company and we were told by the government that if it can't fit in the standard for this we will not procure it so when other companies have gone around to us gone we'd really like to get us have this weapon system be available on your system and we've gone well can it fit in this and they've gone we can't make it fit in that you'll have to make it different sorry we're not going to take it and i just i love that for starters because that's enforcing some rules more importantly these systems the whole idea is you can have some pods might be entirely a reservist occupation because you only need them or only need the number of those pods in wartime i let's say you only need a vast number of anti-submarine warfare pods in wartime so what you do is most of the people who are specialists on it will be reservists they will train on that pod the pod that they're going to go out with so they will know that pod. It can be set up shoreside. It can be plugged into all the computers and simulations. They can train on it for three or four hours uh, a night. They can maybe do that once or twice a week or, you know, whatever their training schedule is. And they can be perfectly fluent in that pod. And then you have a scenario come up and you go, right then, we need to call it reserves. You and your pod's going to be in that plane. You fly out there. Dun, dun, dun. And we take off the specialists who are aboard with their equipment and they go and do something else. Or maybe they don't have all the pods taken up on a ship because that's the other option. You don't have to send out a ship with every pod spot full. You don't. You can, you know, load them on as you need. And it's just, it was just so flexible. And I was looking at going, why is not every single medium power, I'm talking about the Australian Navy, the Royal Navy, the Canadian Navy, the French Navy, every single one beating down a door and going, you know what, we're going to commission all our light frigates, like Type 31 style vessels, and those sort of, hmm. or OPV, everything below that, with that. Would it, would it be because of the various uh, political lobbying groups from BAE? Well, BAE actually ha are one of the few companies who've actually designed their equipment to fit inside these TEUs. That's one of the interesting things. BAE is one of but the few they companies. Don't use can... them. They don't produce TUs, but they do produce the equipment that goes in them. They make a lot of money off this system. And one of the things we were very certain is when we we're looking at it is the Type 31 is being designed with this system as is the Type 26. And I wouldn't be surprised if the next. But they are going to have this modularity or without it. They are pretty much going to have this modularity. Um, one of the actual things, speaking of, of modularity... The actual thing we were told was that what the, the current system is, they've bought the system, they've decided the system of modularity they're going to use. They haven't bought the modules, though, yet, because the modules are being procured under a different budget. Which explains some of the pricing of the Type 31. One of, one of the things I did find very interesting, though, that um, I hadn't... Um, it wasn't actually... the It wasn't a specific answer to a question that I asked at one of the lectures, but it was a kind of well, we're not doing this, but we're doing this instead kind of answer, um, was that uh, apparently, because uh, we've discussed before the idea of a, of a modular um, modular ship, ship, design, ship design instead yeah. of the modular weapons designs, um, apparently that's not a thing. But what is definitely a thing is that uh, I think this was at BAE, they mentioned, at one of the BAE lectures, they mentioned that um, when they are now designing ships, 
they design all of their ships with a point on the hull that is specifically designed to be able to take the ship into dry dock, cut the ship in half along that line, and lengthen it to insert a hull plug to make the ship bigger, to add more capabilities. Which is, I suppose, a good, it's a good halfway house. But that does that does intrigue me because it means that when you're looking at um, various ships where they have a design, a, a series of designs, you know, like a big one and a medium one and a little one. Theoretically, if a navy selects the small one or the medium one, if they can find the money in the future, they could take that ship now if it into if it's one of these these specifically designed vessels, they could take that into dry dock five, ten years down the line when they decide actually they want more capabilities and just make it into the bigger version. Ships fitted not for but not with some part some of their hull. <laughs> yeah, but you know, once again, what does history teach us? You'd never have the time to do that backward sort of um, work, do you? No. Um you don't. It, well, it depends if it's peacetime or not, but, you know, theoretically... That's what I mean. You, you, you need the crisis to justify the expenditure, oh, yeah. and, the, and the crisis happens on its own time scale, not a one that's convenient for you to find a shipyard, con construct the modules, cut the ship in half, insert it, weld it together, get it all working together, and then put it back out to sea. Well, you, you're talking um, about three years' work, aren't you, once it includes working up time and getting everything sorted out. You're talking about three mm. years' work just on the construction side, and that's before you've included any planning, before you'd actually do it. And deciding yeah, I mean, what you're the, going to put into it. The the other thing you've got to bear in mind is, yeah, as you say, this isn't something that you can, as compared to swapping modules out, which you could potentially do relatively quickly. This isn't something you can do because of conflicts has started, um, but it potentially does mean that if you if your navy's ambition is to have a ship with a specific kind of capability, but for whatever reason the treasury at the moment either won't let you have that capability or they will let you have that capability but not with as many holes as you like so let's say you want 12 holes and the, your treasury says you can have six holes with that capability or you can have your 12 holes with less capability you could then go okay well we'll have our 12 holes with less capability now but then 10 years down the line you can then go right and now we'd like a, some more money and we're going to actually upgrade those 12 holes to what we wanted to have in the first place because of course governments change and uh the new treasury department or the new new treasury department or the new 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 treasury department might be a little bit more amenable i guess also it means that you might likely end up seeing a hell of a lot more zubians yes oh good lord we didn't think about that we should have called them the zubian ships mm. have you got an entire victoria sponge tweet in front of us no it's coconut and raspberry that doesn't make it any better. <laughs> Seriously, I have to watch what I eat because I'm trying to lo uh, lose weight. He eats that and stays thin. I'm it's watching what I eat. It's because he's busy. From the, from, the, from, the, uh, from the bowl all the way to my mouth. I'm very careful to watch what I eat. Um, but no, it's. Um, it, I think it's a good idea in, the, in terms of long-term capability. But uh, another thing, that, uh, in terms of things that could potentially be built in the future, that we had a word with some people about was SSN Orcus, 
Mm-hmm. Um, oh, we had a lot of fun with that because um, we had fun with the Babcock people for that one. Mm. I also attended. Were, so... I were definitely not using a model of SSN Orcus to demonstrate their uh, new model for Ten Dock in that they're building in Plymouth Harbour. It was most definitely not the SSN Orcus. The mm-hmm. fact it was a lot bigger than an astute and did not have holes for Trident missiles uh, was no way, in any way, shape, or form, taken as a sign that this was for SSN or this was SSN Orcus. Mm-hmm. This was just a a hypothetical submarine that just happened to be put in ten dock, which they are just spending a lot of money upgrading. And one of the things that I found quite interesting in one of the uh, lectures that was going on at the conference, they actually, well, they mentioned the possibility in the near future of under unmanned underwater vessels being launched and then recovered via the torpedo tubes of nuclear subs. And so at the end of the, when it was part of the Q&A, I asked the question, well, does that mean in the future we're going to need submarines with larger torpedo rooms? Because, of course, if you're sticking a bunch of UUVs uh, in there, then you're reducing your magazine space for actual things that go boom. Or... Are you going to have to do something like a like a drone bay on a surface ship, but somewhere else in the sub? Um, perhaps taking a cue of how the US does its VLS modules, except maybe drone launchers. So, so your your torpedo room remains a torpedo room, and they did make a point that in the future they will probably be looking at what they took. Well, I think what the chapter was was extra large vertical launch tubes so similar to the ones that they're currently sticking on the ultra long virginias um but where it's not a tube for a single cruise missile it's a tube that you could get seven or nine cruise missiles in but could also launch a hypersonic weapon etc etc but because it's also a you know just generally as you can get the the gist of it being a very large tube there's only therefore a few of them in this sort of vls type module array but as a result, you can also fit considerably larger UUVs than you could in a torpedo tube, perhaps even ones that could carry small numbers of people, um, but more generally, things that are longer range with better offboard sensor capabilities and so on, and diving capabilities and, and so on and, and so perhaps, forth. And perhaps carrying their own torpedoes as well. Mm-hmm. Well... As long as I don't call any of them Hal. Oh, I'm calling them Hal. Mm-hmm. It's like in the nicest way, I will remind everyone regularly that the British Defence Forces communication satellite system is still called Skynet and will be called Skynet forevermore because they haven't decided to change it. Mm. So what else did you spot at this uh, conference? Uh, well... We were having our fun, but I would have to say that the, the more, one of the most interesting presentations for me personally that I got was a one-on-one presentation from the General Electric team, because the guy gave a very interesting talk, and then I managed to go and have a chat with him about, about the Queen Elizabeth class. And that's when he told me, he sort of went through the entire electric design, and he said... So who's buying them? They are the ones who produce all the electric electric systems. No, no. Who's buying the Queen Elizabeth class? Oh, no one's buying them. They're, they're, they're the Royal Navies. Stop with that one. Stop with that one. Right. So the General Electric, and if I've now I found the brochure, which will remind me. 
Uh, they have designed the Queen Elizabeth class, so they divide up in. They have the ability to produce have well four islands. What are uh, what they call those in terms of power generation? As long as any one of these islands is running, they are generating power. They have two lower ones and two higher ones. The higher ones are gas turbines. They actually ha don't have the gas turbines down in the bottom of the hull. They have them higher up in the ship because they don't take up that much space. So they're higher up in the ship, and it's the diesels which are down in the hull. And basically, they have it positioned so that any one of these zones can be running, and they can power the ship and keep her running. So if you think about that, if you think about that from damage survivability perspective, if you have a hit on any pair of your ship, the odds are it's not going to take out the uh, all four. The well, how taking out all four power zones requires it takes out the entire ship in one go. So if it as it won't do that, you will always going to retain power. In fact, the odds are if you get a hit, let's say aft, the live a torpedo hit aft would either take out the lower powers or the aft lower power zone, leaving the forward power, the forward power zone fine, the up and the two upper power zones fine, or a hit forward with a missile would take up the upper forward power zone, perhaps, but wouldn't take out the other three. The, it makes it incredibly survivable. It makes it very difficult to kill that ship. And that was a really interesting thing to discuss through because I was sitting there listening to it and thinking about the amounts of ships which have been lost because of them running out of power, their power fall, uh, breaking down, or them losing power for pumps and all it's those things. British then, ships. Yes. Mm. And I was sort of remember a remind, reminder of my own point of the Royal Navy that the Royal Navy does learn from its mistakes and develops paranoia over its mistakes because Abaco, Cressy, and Hogue meant that all Royal Navy crews in World War II have hydrophones or have sonar. Or Asdic, whatever they can get, they have on them because they don't want torpedoes sneaking up on them again. And they're all zigzagging, which is actually why Bismarck manages to get away from at one point because they're zigzagging while following Bismarck just in case they run into submarines. And you sit there and go, well, the Royal Navy's listened to, looked at World War II, they've looked at the Falklands War, and they've gone, actually, modern technology, we can now do this. And now we have got these four islands, and we can either combine them all together in one, one power zone and have them all streaming just one system through one uh, electrical power board, or we can send them off to the other ones. And it could, can, for absolute, you know, for um, damage control and management of issues and responses, it's absolutely amazing. And then you sat there and listened to him and he goes, and of course, the Royal Navy has this oh, gone in the Type 26. And they have this in the Type 45. Oh, and in the Type 31, uh, they've gone for diesel drive systems and they haven't got this at all. And you sit there and listen and go, oh, frigget. Well, you've got to save money somewhere, don't you? Well, I wasn't actually sure how this saved money because I'd have thought running a diesel electric system would have been fairly simple to set up. But and it's actually, I when I talked to the Type Thirty One people, the Arrowhead One Forty Type Thirty One crews, they 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 were quite honest. It's, it's one of the options, but in the nicest way, government didn't select that option. So it's one of the options they could have selected from, but it would have added on, I presume, a bit to the price. But it, you sit there and go, yeah, I'd have thought making it a diesel electric drive. Would have been sensible. I'd have thought. What about you, Jack? What do you think? Because you, you did you manage to go through the General Electric stand? Um, only briefly. I mean, distributed power is always a good thing. Um, 
um, that that's why you start to see uh, diesel and petrol generators and so forth on warships back in the early 20th century. Um, my only two concerns would be be if the independent power systems are being cross-linked such that you can then if you know if a section gets knocked offline you can power it from other sections yes that's and that. if it those can all be put in one system or it can be mm -hmm. run as four separate systems yeah and, and the, the other thing from one can generate all four, four the other thing is then if if you've got four or five however many distributed power systems um the individual output of any given system is relatively speaking low compared to a single point generator system uh the well, traditional machinery space because if let's say a ship needs uh i don't know pulling random numbers out there let's say a ship needs 10 megawatts to run i mean it doesn't but it's, it, let's just use it as a as an easy reference figure so if a ship needs 10 megawatts to run traditionally the machinery spaces would generate those 10 megawatts so you have to have power systems capable of handling 10 megawatts which then have is split down and down and down into further parts of the ship but your initial cabling has to be capable of handling that ridiculous amount of energy whereas if you have say five separate power generation units scattered throughout the ship then any single one of those is generating two megawatts so you're still getting the same overall power distributed through the ship but your systems only what the cabling etc only at any given point has to support maybe two or three megawatts total um so that would be the only other thing we making sure that even if even though you have this distributed power where the individual loads are theoretically a bit less making sure that the system as a whole can still sh handle all of that power being shunted through any given location at full strength because a you might need to do that and b it means that you also have many more options in terms of upgrades because let's say the ship needs finds it so let's say again i know it's a little absurd but let's say the ship's running on 10 megawatts and it now needs 15 megawatts because we've put i don't know a death star laser on top as a, a defense system or some other kind of a high energy intensity weapon um and you're like okay Jamie, well are you protecting we're, we're, your pepperoni pizza right there we're we're, we're going to now upgrade our two megawatt generators to three megawatt generators so we now have a total of 15 well, that might actually be significantly easier than upgrading a 10 megawatt central point generator to a 15 megawatt generator. But, you know, you still want to be able to transmit all of that energy throughout the entire ship. And well, it's the kind of thing that engineers will will point out. But I'm also worried that's the kind of thing that politicians upon review will go, oh, yes, well, um, you know, any individual generator can only generate a maximum of two, two megawatts. So we are, uh, we only need cable supporting cable supporting two megawatts. So which cut I, out all these expensive 10 megawatt cables? <laughs> I, I, I would agree with that. But actually, and this was the interesting thing, because I was talked through and I was talked through the uh, system by the guy from General Electric who actually designed and installed and built the system aboard Queen Elizabeth class. And hmm. um, they didn't for that. For that, any one of their passengers, because they have their gas individual gas turbine, their gas turbine, the two gas turbines are individual zones, islands, and the diesel generators are divided into two islands and spread places. They So they're all sort of split up and the fact is they can all generate the power any one of those islands can generate the power to run the ship they won't be able to get up to necessarily up to full speed but they can run all the hotel load they can run all the pumps and they can keep it moving 
So that's the thing. Any one of those can keep it moving. Full speed, you need at least you need at least two islands, I think, to be in. From what I was understanding, but it's all designed with the boards can all take the maximum load. And the one of the reasons for that was actually for maintenance. It's really interesting was they can take a board off the line and they can do maintenance on the way. It's part of their capacity of keeping the ship going at sea and trying to get more days out of it a year and more things by being able to actually take things offline, repair, rip them down, repair them, and put them back together again. However, saying all that, and including all that, and listening to him as much as I was, which was really interesting going through it all, the interesting thing came back to me was that the Twin Island, the reason they went for the Twin Island arrangement, and uh, that he was pushing this, he said, was that allowed him to keep everything completely separate and have no ducting, at all for the turbine. So by dividing the turbines up into two separate spaces under each island, etc., and going up there for different funnels, he managed to divide it up and get, include extra solubility. So honestly, the vessel has 50% of its power generation forward, 50% of it aft, 50% of it below decks, 50% of it below, 50% above. So it's all sort of divided. And when, when you get, they've got four 11 kilovolt switchboard sections, Four 20 megawatt multi-phased array advanced induction motors, four 20 megawatt uh, PWM multi-phase converters with 12 transformers. They have two gas turbines and four diesel generators, all with electronic alternate electric alternators. They have 13 ship services transformers, three harmonic filters, two shore supply power connections. And the entire system, they have got four centers aboard, which can, can take control of the entire power system. So basically, you from any one of those four points, you can run the entire power system aboard the ship. Now, whilst I agree, that's not, you know, per, uh, you know, we can always do better, etc. For actual survivability, that is a pretty darn good thing. Because you think about it, I, I agree, usually it's your engine room, you have the maintenance, etc. You have it all concentrated at one point. But this place, you now have four. And the odds are any attack is only going to take out one of those power centers. So maybe use that, you lose a gas turbine or you use some of the diesel generation capability if you get attacked. And if they this missile actually gets through. Well, you've still got the remainder of your power supply. That's... And you haven't got the big, massive space which gets filled up with water as well. Think about that. The amount of ships when, when the engine rooms start filling up, the boiler rooms, you're schnookered. Well, that's not the case. So I was really quite interested about that. Um, it also it's described as being flexible, frugal, and future-proof because it's uh, the lowest number of installed prime movers compared with mechanical or hybrid drive systems. Easy adaptable to changing missile profiles, future integration of low zero emission power sources, through life cost savings in fuel and maintenance due to running optimum number of prime movers at optimum loadings to match power demand. Large amounts of installed electrical power can accommodate significant future increases in combat system loads, such as high energy weapons, radar, and minimal uh, impact. And all of the rooms were designed to deal with expanded facilities being added into them in terms of the power supply. So I was really quite impressed with that. And then I was listening to Type 31 and going, what, 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 what happened here? What happened here? What happened? Science. That's what happened there. It's supposed to be cheap and expendable. So it, so it is. Yeah. 
That is yes, sneeze kaboom. of derision. <laughs> yeah. But no, that, that, you know, it's, it sounds fascinating. The, um, I imagine that uh, would ma- that would make the um, Queen Elizabeth and Prince of Wales something of a, a rabbit warren, more so than usual. It, I think it does. I think it does make them. And there's, there's actual people who go who who have been serving on it for months and still don't know their way around. But I wouldn't be surprised, especially with the layers of different over connecting things, etc. In terms of the interconnections between different power supplies, etc., that the cabling must be a frigging nightmare. I would not like to be in charge of maintaining that cabling. So apart from the food, anything else catch your eyes there? Well, let's see. What else? We had those. There was a lot of things. Um, Babcock were nice. Babcock were very nice to talk to. As said, the Danish were lovely. The Danish SH shipyards were really, really nice. Uh, Next really year, nice. you guys should um do something like um you know rerun the Battle of Jutland. It was interesting. Get your own little, get your own little stall. Uh, we, we were considering that. We're, we're certainly considering that one at certain points. But uh, what I found more interesting, and I have to say, was the variety of different vendors there. And the amount of stuff we also had from the British government. We had, oh, the, D, uh, the DSTL people were there. And they were really nice, and we were chatting away with them, and we might go and do some stuff with them and help them out in some ways, and you know, in a work with them if we can, because they're really lovely people. But it's it's fun. It's it's a case of naval history geek heaven, naval engineering heaven. It was definitely. I I, I think I've never seen someone rushing between different booths as quickly as I've seen Drac moving at certain points. Some of the engineering components and this really geeky stuff, like uh, there were all the, the literally bilge pumps. We literally found, and that's who I was holding up earlier. The, the this people, there's me. They're bilge pumps. They make bilge pumps. Better get some sponsorship um, from them. We we we, we were tempted to it. Uh, they're lovely people. They were lovely people, and I, I, what I loved was, of course, one of our key people going around with us was Dan, Doctor Dan, Dan Freeman. He was a medical doctor who goes to medical conferences, and he was going, "This is like medical conferences were supposed, uh, what used to be, uh, you know, are often pretended to be, and were used to be." Oh, oh, good lord! Sorry, we're slightly distracted. Drac has got his uh, Drac has got his earphone earphonic headbands. Uh, just tested testing another product I came across while I was there. <laughs> yeah. He had a lot of fun while he was there. Jamie is speaking to the camera, but oh, we can't sorry. hear him. Yep, it's okay. So it looks like night night sleeping goggles. Pretty much. Yeah, to to uh, to assist with um to assist to I I think originally supposed to be helping people sleep on things like C one thirties and so forth. But there was swag at this conference, so was it? <laughs> We wish. Ah, so this is for your long flight through to Australia, is it? Well, you always have to exploit the things that you find um, while you're while you're uh, scouting around. 
It's always, always a good okay. idea. Mm. All right, and so you're going to be... a lot of fun. <clears throat> so you're packing your bags and heading down under in the next few weeks? Yes. Yep. Well, literally next week. Next next week this time, I will be on the plane already. And I'll be, as of uh, a week on Sunday, is my flight out. All right. Well, hopefully it doesn't... Um... Hopefully it doesn't completely wreck you, being a 20-odd hour flight. It'll be fun. No. Well, I, 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 I've knuckled down and taken the um, the direct route because it is the, at the time of booking, it was the cheapest yeah. and it's also the fastest. Just load up your load up your phone with audiobooks and things and... Um... Yeah, well, I've got a lot of I've got a lot of writing to do while I'm um, while I'm on my way, so I'll be doing that, um, uh, and hopefully that'll uh, and keep me entertained. However, there is one advantage for me having had to book slightly later when the price has changed round, isn't there, Drac? Is that? Oh, yes. Yeah, one advantage because whilst I am going by Singapore Airlines and I am going via Singapore. There that is one of go on an A380. I'm stuck on a Dreamliner. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh, well. It'll be Which fun. We shall survive. We shall we persevere. Shall. And this, uh, is the, this is the man who I remember when we were booking for Canada was going, yeah, no no no, we're going by the Airbus. We're not going at no point are we going on Boeing. So we're going on Airbus. We're going on Airbus. He was <laughs> and, uh, and now it's the case of he was going, oh yeah, I'll definitely and I will definitely be on an Airbus if I go with Qantas. I'll definitely be an Airbus. And he's on a Boeing. <laughs> well, at least okay. it's not a one of the Boeings with the uh at the engines that don't believe in um working. Well no, there there's no, the, the unbalanced ones, yeah. Yeah, well, there's one specific manufacturer of engines who shall remain nameless for the moment, um, but they're an American manufacturer of engines who, unlike their <laughs> other American counterpart and Rolls-Royce, who believe in really nice thick Kevlar bands around their engines to contain the fragments in the event of uh, unscheduled engine disassembly, this this one particular American manufacturer of engines does not believe in the in this they have very very minimal protection, which means that if you are sitting adjacent to the engine and the engine catastrophically fails uh you get to experience for a very brief and limited time what it's like to be in a blender at thirty thousand feet which i've never been particularly keen on because whenever the random seat assignments come out i usually end up somewhere near the wing <laughs> this is why i pay for seat specific booking yes. that, and, that and because i it gets me the exit row which means i get legroom Oh, I'm going well. exit row economy premium. Well, for, for all right. our, we'll, we'll... our Antipodean uh, listeners, we will be in Perth, Melbourne, Brisbane, and Sydney at various points um, in the next few weeks. You we can obviously be... check yeah, out our yeah. channels and uh, check out the check out uh, yeah check out the ch our channels and check out hopefully my website by the end of the weekend for the schedule. And... Check out shipshape.org. And yes, we should also have our schedule by sort of. I would love to say end of weekend, but can we say by Tuesday? Because I know some people will not respond till Monday with the confirming. 
because they're just like that because it's a work it's a work day you know they'll only respond on the work day <laughs> i i let, let's put it, i love them dearly and i have to say i love them dearly and there has only been one museum which has caused me any stress at all dinner all the rest of australian museums i love you all you have been wonderful to deal with you've been beautifully friendly kind everything i could have hoped for supportive helpful you have helped me organize pick restaurants um I cannot sing the praises of Brisbane and of Sydney uh, any higher. HMS AS Castlemaine is lovely. Those people are wonderful, and I will always, always be thankful for them. It's a great ship, too. However, I will remain, it will remain nameless which universe, uh, which um, museum has been causing single-handedly trying to cause me to go grey early and prematurely. And they have the most annoying timing, let's say, in their changing of their minds <laughs> to the point at which that before this video, uh, before this uh, podcast started recording, um, we uh, there might have been an interesting invective discussion going on between the three participants. <laughs> let's just but say the, 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 the logo involves a black duck. Mm. Mm. Oh, right. No, well, thank you. Later on. Bye bye, people. Get around. Bye bye. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off.